A wooden raft has iron sheets slapped upon it with cannons rolled on it ready to sail, looking at a Union fort, dreaming of reducing it down to nothing. This is actually not the Merrimack, but a iron battery being sailed out to shoot Fort Sumter. On this episode, part two of the Battle of Hampton Roads, join us to hear the background of the Civil War and the power of iron steamcraft. The early American Republic carried a contentious issue of slavery between slave states and free states. The heroes of the American Revolution, our founding fathers, had to deal with preaching about liberty and freedom while also owning slaves. This caused issues between the states in the new established Congress, where free states and slave states had different interests, one mercantile, the other agricultural, and over the ownership of slaves in general. Whether it is to be a free state and ban slavery, or have slaves and run a chattel agriculture system in it, with each new state admitted into the Union, there had to be a coinciding state that would be a slave or free state. This was a problem for the state to be Missouri, which needed a compromise on whether it was going to be a slave state or a free state. Missouri chose slave, and with that admission into the Union came the state of Maine as well as a free to keep the balance in Congress but it also established a line across the United States and land that was once Mexico, now claimed and owned by the United States at the end of the Mexican-American War. That line was not enough for the rich planter class of the South, who owned all the slaves and were running out of prime agricultural good-soiled land to run the cash crops that fueled their wealth between cotton and tobacco, which were intense and required large amounts of slave labor to produce, but made the rich planter class of the South extremely wealthy. That wealth allowed them to import everything that they needed, from food to fine goods, either manufactured in the North or manufactured across the seas. But that wasn't a problem because they made so much money off of the planting of these cash crops that were shipped across the ocean. Now, as Kansas, Nebraska were coming into the Union as territories and becoming s new states, they were looking for the land that could be massive plantation areas, and they pushed to throw the Missouri Compromise out and bring in the idea of popular sovereignty, where the people in those territories can decide whether they're going to be free or slave. So Kansas and Nebraska were up for grabs with everyone, both abolitionists, people who were against slavery, and pro-slave planters and pro-slave non-planters all rushing in to the Kansas Territory to establish whether a free or slave state. This caused a violence leading to what was known as Bleeding Kansas. So in telling this story about the Hampton Roads, there's a certain level of background knowledge you just have to know. We're not trying to get too far into the weeds by talking about the prelude, but 
like I said last time, there's a lot of different actors in play here, a lot going on. You know, the Civil War, it may just be in between one country fighting itself, but it's a pretty big country and there's a lot of different political, you know, ideological motivations happening. So we'd like to give you just, you know, a nice background. That's why we're doing this right now. So the Bleeding Kansas was a contentious issue between the slave states and free states. As we were saying, popular sovereignty was a concept and you know the south wanted to keep its grip on power if too many states started voting to become free then the free you know senators and all that could just kind of do whatever they wanted which wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing but and there had been violence before in this whole thing you got south carolina the nullification crisis a bunch of different examples of this but the difference here is what I was just saying about the South losing its grip on power. Because, see, a caged animal, an animal backed into a corner, is going to react a lot more violently than one that thinks it has a chance. And the South was starting to see the writing on the wall of their situation at this point. Economically, the South was tied to agriculture and tied to slavery. Most of the good agricultural farmland has been gobbled up by rich planters, leaving poor whites to run small farms or be day laborers in what minuscule industry was available in the South or move north. Not to mention the millions of enslaved African Americans who worked these large plantations for a wealthy planter class. This planter class made so much money off of cotton and tobacco that they never really had to improve their industrial standards or build things in the South. They could just buy and import. But if slavery is under threat, this economic system that they're so used to is going to be gone and they're going to be pushed back to a lower economic standard. Now, if they are the rich planter class, they're also the congressmen, the senators, and the governors of states. They know that this is happening, and they're going to push for secession from the Union because they see a man from Illinois rising in power named Abraham Lincoln who has not emancipation tendencies, but shows that the North and the new Republican Party can outweigh them. And the South, who has a Southern Democratic presidential candidate and there's a Northern Democratic presidential candidate, they can see the division. They're being isolated. And these rich planters know that if they're isolated and they're pushed out, their economic standards, which involves treating humans as subhuman slaves to improve their life, be able to have their mint juleps and buy French dressers, which is a horrible thing, Slavery is a horrible crime against humanity, but these people don't care and they have an economic standard, an economic bar to keep themselves at, so they're going to push to leave the Union. And that's where we're at. The great irony in all of this is that the South was so terrified that this Abraham Lincoln was going to take office and ban slavery and ruin their way of life, but, you know, anti-slavery leaders like Frederick Douglass up in the North hated Lincoln because he didn't want to do that. that. That's the big issue they had with him, is he was too stagnant, he was too conciliatory towards the South. He just kind of wanted to keep the status quo. His big goal was to just keep the country together, make it like kind of not his issue, you know. But the South and all their fear and terror of their way of life being changed, you know, this horrible chattel slavery being removed, uh, they just couldn't act rationally in this situation. 
So most of the southern states started seceding from the Union even before Abraham Lincoln even was inaugurated as president. They were leaving because they were afraid of what he was going to do as president, and he was elected president, but they were inaugurated in March before the law was changed. The president during the time came in the presidency at March. So it was still not even Abraham Lincoln's term as president when they started leaving. That's the way that they thought of Abraham Lincoln, even though that wasn't even the case. But these people went against the planter class, by the way, because a large majority of people in the South didn't want us to leave, from the, leave the Union either. They had secession elections in which they had gangs that would purposely block people from voting to stay in the Union. So when all these states were seceding, there were still large populations of people who were pro-Union who were being blocked from being voting for staying in the Union. They, it, 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 it's mind-boggling that these rich planter class were blocking normal people who were a part of the Union and didn't own slaves from being a part of that. But there were still a large population who were afraid of a servile revolution, which the slaves are rising up and killing them. And the racism of the time also pushed people away from idea of emancipating the slaves. And the rich planter class really pushed that ideology hard. As states are voting to secede, the first one to vote to secede is a state called South Carolina. So see, this wasn't just a all or nothing, they vote to secede and guns start firing, everyone's violent, you know, no one wanted to be the first one to fire a shot. They all were kind of in a, there's probably a name for it, a confederate standoff of sorts, where they were all holding guns to each other's heads, but you know, no one knew who was going to fire first. So Union generals in the area of South Carolina, Charleston in particular, were looking at the situation. They had a fort, Fort Moultrie, which they thought was indefensible. You know, it's in the city. If South Carolina decides to go full guns blazing, this fort's going to fall immediately. So they decided to move all their military assets to what they believed to be a more defensible position on a man-made island in the harbor of Charleston, South Carolina, a fort called Fort Sumter. It's a very confusing time for the Union and con new Confederacy. As more and more states join, no one knows exactly how this is going to go down, whether this is going to be solved peacefully or with violence. Now, the, in the book that we use as our main source for this podcast, Iron Dawn by Richard Snow, there is a story about the general who is you may know from the history of the Civil War, as P.T. Beauregard, he is building a heavy water battery to fire upon Fort Sumter uh, if the order is given. He even asks, quote, batteries ready to open Wednesday or Thursday, what instructions? The new rebel soldiers were really itching to get this fight going, but the Union was real confused on how this was going to go down. Abraham Lincoln just assumed office on March 4th, 1860. This standoff would go for over a month as a Lieutenant James Randolph Hamilton builds a floating battery to go up to Fort Sumter. People in Charleston, South Carolina are confused, claiming that this will not work and this sh thing will just sink into the water. But little do they know that it sails off and it moves closer and closer to Fort Sumter as the main commander of the artillery barrage that would soon come to Fort Sumter, P.T. Beauregard, prepares to shoot. On April 12th, 
the first shot is fired at Fort Sumter. It is bombarded for 34 hours until the Union decides to surrender. Abraham Lincoln is calling for troops to come, and a state called Virginia, the jewel of the Union, one of the most important southern states, secedes. Now, what is there to be done? There is a large naval yard there, and a ship. The Gosport Naval Yard in Virginia is one of the crown jewels of the Union Navy. It has the largest dry dock in the entire country at the time. It's responsible for most of the ship manufacturing on a large scale. You gotta remember the Union fleet isn't actually that big at this time. You know, America hasn't really fought that many overseas wars, so they only really needed one major naval yard. And Virginia is one of the biggest states in the Union at the time. This naval yard housed the pride of the fleet, the USS Merrimack. It took a lot of design inspiration from the earlier Princeton, but it was the most advanced ship in the entire Union Navy at the time. Its boilers were very complicated, though, and they actually weren't working at the time of the Southern Secession. So Gideon Wells, our old friend from the last episode, is very concerned about this because it is smack dab in the middle of Virginia and it is the most advanced ship and the Union does not need the South to have this ship because they will use it. So he sends his friend Frank Isherwood, who's the main naval engineer for the Union, down to get this ship in working order. Now, the naval engineer at the Gosport Naval Yard, a man named Robert Dansby, said that the ship couldn't be fixed for three months. Frank Isherwood, who had written a book on steam engineering, disagreed. He went down there, he looked at the state of the engine, the parts were literally laying on the shore of the sea, just rusting, melting away, because the Union had well, no real reason to have the boat at the time. They hadn't really decided to put in the effort to fix it for months, and now when the time had come, they figured, okay, this is a lost cause. But Isherwood, he fixed it in three days. So Isherwood had arrived in Gobsport right after Fort Sumter, so on April 14th, if you're keeping track. He'd fixed it in three days, so by April 17th, it was ready to go. But see, there was a lot of, like, pro-Southern guys working at Gobsport at the time, and so they would absolutely know if the ship was leaving. And that's what Lincoln and a lot of the naval bureaucracy were worried about, is they didn't want to antagonize Virginia by taking the crown jewel of the fleet out. Because Virginia hadn't actually fought yet. You know, they had technically seceded, but they weren't actually in armed combat yet. So there's just kind of a lot of feet dragging right now. They're, they're just kind of like, well, you know, we don't want to take it because we don't want to antagonize Virginia into actually fighting if they're not going to. So... Isherwood is just getting frustrated, and Wells is too, because they're looking at the ship. They're like, we have to get this ship out of here, or it is going to be captured. On April 18th, Isherwood starts the engines, just to prove that it's working. The boilers are brought to full steam, but it's still just sitting in harbor. Gideon Wells at the time, actually, the ship takes about 600 people to run it. So Wells is like, okay, we need to get a crew so we can start this ball rolling. He can only find 63 men, though. So the ship still just sits, it's still just waiting, it's fully repaired. On April 19th, though, Isherwood is 
evacuated because his knowledge on steam engines and his prominence in the Union Navy is just too important for him to be a prisoner of war. And the situation in Virginia is starting to heat up a lot. And then finally, a few hours after that, the ship is ordered scuttled so as not to fall in enemy hands. So the Union has managed to miraculously fix the pride of their fleet in three days, a feat which no one thought was possible, and then through bureaucratic fumbling, they now have burned it to the ground, and it sinks below the waterline, never to be seen again. Or so the Union thinks, because as Confederate troops finally entered the Gobsport Naval Yard, they found, you know, a charred bits of wood sticking out of the waterline. And after some investigation, they figured out that as the ship sunk, it put out the fire, and most of the bottom of the ship is still fine. And the most important part of all this, the engine is perfectly fine. It, it didn't get damaged at all. So they have the bottom half of a ship just ready to go. It just needs a top, you know. And the cannons, you know, had a couple hundred cannons on board. They were big cannons, and when the Union went to destroy them, they found that they couldn't actually damage them, so they just drove railroad spikes into the, you know, bit where the fuse goes, and poked holes in the mouth of the barrel, and threw them in the water. And as the Confederate troops fished them out, they figured out, yeah, these are pretty repairable. So they had about 60 cannons ready to go in the bottom half of a ship. The Union didn't quite know any of this yet, but they just completely bungled this entire scenario. And in doing so, they managed to give the Confederacy their one chance to completely shatter the Union Navy. A man born in Trinidad and Tobago and then grew up in Key West named Stephen Mallory was a Navy man through and through, grew up shipbreaking and harvesting broken ships as his income. He joined an expedition to go hunt Indians, but other than that had a really minor career in politics. But as secession drew and the CSA, the Confederate Navy, needed a man who knew a bit about ships, he was appointed Secretary of the Navy. And he knew of that iron battery down in Charleston. Stephen Mallory saw the fact that this floating barge down in South Carolina didn't really have its own power, but when the Union shot at it, it couldn't do a thing. It bounced right off. It had to be tugged out, but what if this idea of an iron-clad vessel with lots of cannons and thick armor came to its logical conclusion? And then he heard about the scuttled Merrimack knowing that they had one of the pinnacle Union ships with a functioning steam engine, and the CSA had no navy to speak of other than what they could dig up and turn into gunboats, they could make something that could terrorize the port cities of the Union, D.C., Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York, could all live in terror from a ship clad in thick iron and powered by true Confederate soldiers and sailors. Oh, this is a dream for Stephen Mallory, and this could be a deliverance for the Confederate government.
who Jefferson Davis authorized Stephen Mallory to go ahead and start the project. And Stephen Mallory, based in Richmond, as the Confederacy started its war, walked to the Tredegar Ironworks to begin discussing the plans for what would then be called the CSS Virginia. As we briefly touched upon last episode, the Union had established a blockade over the entire South. This is important because they weren't just blockading southern ports. They were blockading the entire southern coastline. The reason they were doing this is because that's what European powers did. The British Empire at the time, when they were declaring war on France or Prussia or any of those countries, they would blockade the coastline. That's what they respected. You know, you put up a good naval blockade, you're a legitimate power, and they would respect that. So Lincoln realizing this decided okay well if we want any chance of you know this being a war just between the north and the south without europe getting involved we just have to establish that we're the dominant power we have control of the navy and basically don't mess with us this was a problem though because such a massive operation hadn't actually been attempted by anyone not even by the vaunted british navy you know it's like 3,000 miles of coastline, and the Union did not have that big of a fleet. So they started just kind of enlisting you know, merchant ships, putting cannons on them, and just constructing a lot of kind of smaller steamers or wind-powered ships just to get you know boats in the water. Because you know, as small as their Navy is, the Confederate Navy was even smaller. They pretty much had no ships other than what they could capture from the Union, but other than the Merrimack, the Union was pretty good at getting their ships out of port before the South could capture them, because most of the sailors were from the North, because the North had a lot more of a long-standing naval tradition than the South had, because the South was mostly agricultural-based, like we were saying. You know, their exports were cotton and tobacco, and they would pretty much just sell them to Union mercantile people to shipped to England. So this is the other critical fact is the South's economy was built on exports. They weren't selling the cotton to each other. They were selling the cotton to England and France. They needed to get this stuff out if they were to want any money at all. That's the major reasons why this blockade was important. You know, they had to get the respect and the South was built on exports. So that's why it was critical for the South to break this at all costs. If they wanted to survive, they needed those exports back. In fact, the South believed at the time that the power of their tobacco and cotton industry was what would draw the European powers in. They said that, you know, king cotton is what's going to, you know, make the South win at all costs because they're so reliant on our exports and our cotton to keep their shirts made and, you know, their pipes full that they'll do anything to keep us in the, you know, exporting and keep our goods going into their ports. But they quickly found that the British Empire didn't really care. You know, they had India, they had a lot of land that they could just kind of grow cotton and tobacco on their own. So that wasn't uh, very well thought out on their part. To understand the agricultural cash crop power of the South, they were one of the most wealthy regions in the United States, but only for the planter class. And all of the good productive land was being used for cotton and tobacco. 
And people knew that. General Winfield Scott, the hero of the Mexican-American War and at the beginning of the Civil War in 1860, commander of Union forces, was a Southerner who stayed loyal to the Union. And he wrote a friend who was all about secession, telling him that the South will starve. You guys do not grow enough food. You spend all of the land on having productive cash crops grown, and you're not going to be able to feed your armies. You're not going to be able to feed any your population. You import food, but you export everything else. You have no actual production to sustain yourself, unlike the North. The North had factories, and the North had a large agricultural system that grew food. These were small farmers, but they all grew food. They didn't have these massive plantations that only grew cash crops. Winfield Scott explained that into a letter to his friend down in the South who was all about secession, and all he got in return was an ear of corn. Something that would be foreshadowed later in the Civil War when the South had horrible food insecurity and led to large populations, including civilians, coming close to starving. Now, this is later in the war, but as the beginning of the war in 1860 kept on going and going and going, but there wasn't a lot of shooting, the CSA, the Confederate States, and the Navy of the Confederate States of America knew this blockade was coming and knew that they could strangle them economically. They could just block them off. So it's important to build some sort of wonder weapon to take out these old-timey naval ships that the Union had, because most of them were the age of sail. So they took what they had and were going to build something that could just not only be psychological warfare and scare the Union, but have something that could pound right through and get those cotton exports out and into the world. Now, also, uh, all of the southern rail lines, by the way, which weren't a lot, instead of being used for troops and instead of being used to, you know, move people or food, uh, all the ones down in the deep south were being used to move cotton. And this is a story that we will hear later as we talk about the Tredegar Ironworks, where their rail line would be clogged with something else. But the Union weren't slouches, and southern newspapers were just plastering all the ideas of the Confederacy and any secret plans were being used as propaganda to say the South is winning and the South is going to be good and the South, 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 Dixieland forever, all of that stuff. And they heard about this secret plan to build an ironclad. So the Union knew and the Union had a trick up their sleeve. They knew that there were ships being built like the HMS Warrior in England that were all iron, and they knew that ironclads were going to be crucial. So they set up a commission to discover, can the Union get ironclads out, and can they get an ironclad that could beat whatever the South and the Confederacy could put together? They don't have their largest naval yard anymore, but they do have the industrial might of the Union, and the smaller but more efficient ports in Brooklyn. Join us next time for part three of the Battle of the Hampton Roads, where we're going to talk about the Union plans for an ironclad, the uh, Washington politics that threatened to strangle those innovations in the crib, and the issues that the South had with building a ship of their own. Thanks for listening.